Well, you didn't hear it read in church this Sunday, but if there was ever a week for a Bible study on Romans 13, this would have been the week. You have read the news. I don't need to tell you what's going on this week with the Attorney General citing the Apostle Paul's, word, the Apostle Paul's words in defense of 10,000 children being held in shelters at U.S. borders. But lest you think that what we read in church doesn't matter, that nobody's listening or paying attention, well, here we are. It is a rare day indeed when Anderson Cooper is breaking down ancient Greek grammar on CNN. And there's a part of me um, that is kind of like living for this stuff, right? I, I teach Bible studies, and sometimes I wonder if like anybody really cares. Like, is this just like a little niche market for Bible nerds like me? And then my brother in Christ, Jeff Sessions, a United Methodist Sunday School teacher, and Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the daughter of a Baptist minister, start wading into this stuff, and all of a sudden, everybody wants to talk about what the Bible says. So that's kind of fun, isn't it? And, and there's a way in which this is not new. Scripture has been used to justify and to condemn all kinds of human behavior. Romans 13 itself was used 100 years ago to justify slavery. It's been used to justify apartheid and segregation, the armed takeover of native lands, racism and bigotry and violence of every kind. And Scripture has been used as justification for about every movement of justice and equality as well, from abolition, the emancipation of slaves, women's equality, gay marriage, right? You name it. And if all, if all you're doing is mining the Bible for pull quotes, I mean, you can make this thing say just about anything you want it to. I used to think that it, was, that it was like my job to defend the Bible, especially after I first came out, actually. I, uh, I was reading just about anything I could get my hands on, on what the Bible really says about homosexuality. This is before, you know, we had debates about immigration and how you treat illegal aliens. The big question in those days was scriptural interpretation around homosexuality. It still is in some places. And I became convinced that it was like my job, my calling, if you like, to take the Bible back from those who were using it to demean and to threaten, to say that gay people were somehow less than, that our loves are intrinsically disordered, that we're somehow less than fearfully and wonderfully made in the eyes of God. So I spent, like, you know, several years kind of learning the arguments, learning how to debate texts, and that was kind of fun. I mean, there's nothing like self-righteous indignation to wake you up in the morning. It's, like, <laughs> better than... You know, better than coffee. You quote, you know, you quote Leviticus 20.13 at me. I quote Galatians 3.28 back at you. We lob this thing back and forth, this text and that. We never actually have a conversation, really. We just keep attacking one another, using the Bible as our weapon. I mean, even the devil can quote scripture, as Shakespeare famously said. What I discovered, among other things, is that scriptural debates, while sometimes satisfying in that sort of self-righteousy kind of way, very rarely change anybody's thinking. Even more rarely do they change anybody's heart. They tend to create adversaries, and Jesus does not actually call us to be good enemies of one another. He asks us to learn how to be good neighbors. And he tells this parable, the kingdom of God, Jesus says, the, the neighborhood of God, if we want to think in a more contemporary sort of way, the neighborhood of God is like when somebody scatters a bunch of seed on the ground and then goes to sleep. That is arguably the most boring parable Jesus ever told. Only Mark, 
records this one. Matthew and Luke and John don't pick this one up in their subsequent retellings. And actually, one very reputable New Testament scholar suggests that that lack of being picked up is because it's kind of a dull parable. It's a story with all the drama of an elementary school life sciences textbook, right? There are, there are no surprises here. There's no sudden twists of fate, no unexpected ending. Everything just kind of plods along, succeeding precisely according to plan. This is bad TV, right? Seeds sprout. That's what they do. So maybe we need something simple. Maybe we need something a little bit boring, actually, to remind us of what this whole thing is supposed to be about. I mean, sometimes the gospel does this, because this stuff is not hard to understand when you get right down to it. It's not complicated. It's actually pretty simple. It's as simple as a mustard seed. This noxious weed that flies into the garden on the bottom of somebody's shoe, the smallest of seeds that takes root all by itself and, and then flourishes, right? Despite all human efforts to eradicate it and deny it and crowd it out and shout it down, the kingdom of God just does its thing without any recourse to human anxiety and drama. And what it does is create a shelter creates a place of refuge and protection and safety for the birds of the air in this parable, for the most vulnerable of God's creatures. The kingdom of God in this image that Jesus uses is a community. The kingdom of God is a neighborhood. So what's a neighborhood? What's a, what's a spiritual neighborhood look like? There's a film out right now that is asking some of these questions. Maybe you've seen it. It's playing just up the street, Cinema 21. It's, uh, it's all about Mr. Rogers. Uh, it's called Won't, Won't You Be My Neighbor is the name of the film. I went with my parents this weekend um, thinking, you know, my parents brought me up on Mr. Rogers. I was inoculated in this tradition. Um, but I thought, you know, I, I know this guy's story. This will be sweet and maybe a little sentimental, and I sort of know how this will go, right? We all know kind of the Mr. Rogers shtick. I was blown away by this film. I left not quite sure what had happened to me. Um, and a part of it was the story that we all know. And a part of it were the things that I had forgotten about. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood premiered in 1968. The first week of the show, King Friday the 13th is building a wall around the neighborhood of make-believe to keep out change. A couple weeks later, you've got this conversation between Lady Aberlin and Daniel Striped Tiger. And Daniel says to Lady Aberlin, what's assassination mean? This is the week of Robert Kennedy, right? Mr. Rogers talks about it. Talks about Assassination, the, the Challenger incident, death, divorce, bombs falling. This is the Vietnam War, right? All of that found its way into Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. It was, it was, it was one of the more hard-hitting treatments um, and really beautiful treatments and really gave me a little bit of a sense of, of what really made this man tick. The fire that was in Mr. Rogers' belly, this firm, unshakable conviction that all people, but, but especially children, need above all else to know that they are loved and capable of loving someone else. And he thought television could do that. Maybe not the, the pie-throwing antics of Howdy Doody or the, the guns and grenades of G.I. Joe. In 1969, they called Mr. Rogers before Congress to defend funding for public television. He addressed this hostile, dismissive crowd of politicians with the simplest possible message. He said, I give an expression of care every day to every child I end every program by saying, you've made this day a special day just by your being you. There's no person in the whole world like you, and I like you just the way you are. 
Senator John Pastore, who was chairing this hearing, he'd been kind of riding roughshod over all the other previous presenters. He kind of cocks his head a little bit. He sits up a little bit straighter in his chair. This is not a message that you, he is used to hearing on the floor of the United States Senate chamber. And Mr. Rogers proceeds to quote the senator the entirety of one of his songs. He looks dead at him and says, what do you do with the mad that you feel? When you feel so mad, you could bite. When the whole wide world seems oh so wrong and nothing you do seems very right. The entire room is like held spellbound by this, this man. And Mr. Rogers ends with the last lines of this song. Know that there is something deep inside that helps you become, helps us become what we can. And you see the senator kind of take a deep breath in. And he says, I'm supposed to be a pretty tough guy. This is the first time in two days that I've had goosebumps. And he turns to Mr. Rogers and he says, it looks like you just earned your $20 million, buddy. The neighborhood of God is like that. There is something deep inside us that helps us become what we can. I mean, senators get goosebumps when God's kingdom shows up and they discover that they too have a place in that neighborhood. Because our needs are actually pretty simple when it comes right down to it, right? We need to know that we're loved, capable of loving. We need to be listened to. We need to feel seen and known and understood. And when the seed of God's kingdom is planted deep in the soil of the heart and starts to do its thing, something happens to a community. It starts to look like a neighborhood. It becomes a place where human beings are not strangers one to another, enemies to be opposed. When we realize that we're living in a neighborhood, we don't have to defend our turf. We don't have to stake out our claim, debate the meaning of scripture, make America great again. To live in the neighborhood, all you have to do is remember that you're loved, not for anything that you have ever done or accomplished, just by virtue of being you. I mean, that's grace, right? You can't buy that. You can't earn that. You can't, you know, work your way into higher and higher levels of righteousness to get God's favor because it's way simpler than that. It's a, it's a tiny seed thrown onto the ground that sprouts and grows we know not how. That is the core message of this book. That's what Holy Scripture is about, so maligned and misused through the centuries, yet capable of such power when the seed of the gospel, the seed of, of grace, is permitted to grow and thrive. When we live in the neighborhood, we don't have to argue with one another about what Scripture allows or justifies, what it condemns. I mean, all of those interpretive games, which are usually about power, right? They're always based on a false pretense. God's neighborhood does not depend upon me to defend it. I don't have to put a fence around it. I don't have to protect it from those who would take away what I find most precious here. The neighborhood of God does not need me to defend it. It needs me to live in it, to make my nest under the shade of its trees, to realize that I am just as vulnerable, just as in need of shelter as the so-called least of these, the frightened and terrified and marginalized and demeaned and condemned. I am a part of their neighborhood. They belong in my neighborhood. We all want basically the same thing, to be loved, to be seen, to know that we're not mistakes, to be able to do something productive with the mad that we feel and to turn it to some better use than shouting one another down. 
I mean, these are anxious times. At the end of the documentary, the filmmakers ask the people who were closest to Mr. Rogers, his wife, his kids, his co-workers, you know, what would, what would Mr. Rogers think of our world today? What would he be doing? How would he, how would he respond to this world that we're living in? I mean, did his, did his work succeed or did it fail? Is there, is there a place in media for a voice like that? Can you imagine Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood getting the green light by a TV studio today? I mean, is, is the world that we're living in now proof that his mission, however beautiful and well-intentioned it was, ultimately failed? I mean, did it work? Or are we living in a failed neighborhood? I don't know the answer to that. Here's what I know. Kindness is never a mistake, and gentleness is never failure. The neighborhood of God is as if somebody planted a seed. There's a reason Jesus uses that metaphor. In the Gospel of Mark, the seed always represents death. It represents Jesus himself, the seed planted in the darkness of a tomb on Good Friday that seemed dead and forgotten, only to sprout up unbidden and unlooked for three days later. That which seems to have failed has life in it yet, and it does not need me to work its magic. It happens sometimes while I'm not watching. The neighborhood of God will have its way, whether we like it or not. There is a longer game being played here. The only question for us is, do you want to choose to live in God's neighborhood? Because it's, it's here, right? It's right here. It will have the last word. It's a beautiful neighborhood, and we can choose to live in it. So let's make the most of this beautiful day. Amen.